0: Welcome to Navigating the Classics. I'm John Snyder, and with me today is actually my son, Andrew Snyder. Andrew is a student at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, and um, so Andrew has agreed to help us out as we look at another one of the ancient texts of Christianity, one that perhaps um The average person wouldn't pick up and read, you know, one that isn't published by Reformation Heritage Books or Ligonier or Banner of Truth. And so we're going to be looking at the book written by Augustine, early church father, and the book that he wrote that we're looking at is called His Confessions. And so we're going to just take some time to kind of get an introduction into who he was and um, what the book is about and Andrew's going to be walking us through most of that. And then we'll we'll come back and look at five kind of key themes in the book that we feel um, these are themes that are practical for every believer and things that, that are very helpful. And we'll bring the whole to, to an end and kind of sum it all up by talking about some of the strengths and weaknesses of the book and asking ourselves, um, who would you recommend the book to? So... Um, Andrew, thanks for being with us. Yeah, happy to be on. Now, Andrew, um, I think we have to ask you right off at, at PRTS. Who's your favorite professor?
1: My favorite lecturer, because I'm online, is definitely Joel Beaky.
0: Okay, just stop there. <laughs> that that's good. So, Dr. Beaky, you heard that, um, and so maybe that'll kind of come in handy yeah. in the coming years. I'll get a good grade. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, um, I, I think that. Um, you know, when we look at a book like Augustine's Confessions, uh, it, it's one of those books that you may have heard of but not read, and it's always good, especially with, with um, ancient text, to try to get an idea of who wrote it and what, what was the context, uh, because even though men might write true things, when we see the context, what was going on in their life, I find that it, it lends great weight to what they said. So let me just give—it's not our um, intention to give a full biography uh, of um, Augustine, so let me just kind of give you a quick one, and then we'll look at uh, some introductory things about his book before Andrew walks us through it. Augustine was born in 354 in northern Africa. His father, whose name was Patricius, was a pagan. His mother, whose name is Monica, was a very zealous Christian. Uh, where they lived, it was difficult for uh, people to ascend in the Roman, you know, system of wealth and influence. But they worked hard and sacrificed to send Augustine to good schooling. And Augustine went to school there in his hometown. He later went to, um, you know, what we think of as like a high school setting uh, in in a, in a nearby village, and then eventually he goes to Carthage. And at Carthage, through the help of a wealthy benefactor, he's able to get some good schooling. And Augustine really excels. He he has a great mind for language and literature. He studies rhetoric, the the art of speaking, and eventually becomes a teacher in rhetoric. Uh, Augustine is not a Christian. And uh, while his father hoped that his good education would result in an ambitious career, his mother hoped that one day God would save him, and that through that great salvation, uh, what God was doing in his education would come to fruition, that, th- that these things would be used by the Lord one day for his honor. He works, uh, in, he, he finishes his work in Carthage, and he becomes a, um, a, a professor, a teacher, He disliked working there as a teacher because of the behavior of the students. Apparently, the students, it was the custom that they could behave very poorly. He said, in fact, they behaved so badly at school that if they would have been outside of the school, they would have been arrested for what they did. But it was the custom of the day that that was allowed. And so he became frustrated with that school system and left there. And eventually he was offered... Uh, A place of teaching in Milan. And he went there in 384. Uh, While he was there, and this is a very prestigious place, one um, historian compared it to being like the chair of government uh, at Harvard University, you know, so quite a prestigious place. He goes there, and while he's there, he encounters a man named Ambrose. And Ambrose is a great preacher in the church there. Now Augustine has been, and Andrew, you'll you'll hit this uh, as we look at his book, but Augustine has been looking for answers. Uh, he's a very um, ambitious man. He's also a man that that has searched for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Uh, he has gone to Manichaeism, uh, a system that is a, a strange back then, a system that combines some of the teachings of Christianity, some of the teachings of Buddha and then Zoroastrianism. And it, it viewed the universe kind of as divided in a dual two categories. There is the pure spiritual aspects, and then there is the sinful aspect, but that's the material. So, what we call a a Gnostic. It's one of the Gnostic religions. So things are evil and sinful because they're physical. And if only we could escape this physical world, then our spirits would live in this purity. And of course, one of the implications that usually followed that view is that what I do with my body just doesn't matter. You know, I can kind of live any way I want with this. This is just going to be shucked off at the end. And so, you know, sin isn't a thing that taints my soul. Well, he chases after that for a while, but when he meets Ambrose, he is shocked that this man, who is a capable preacher, uh, his words carry great weight with Augustine because his words are connected to reality, whereas uh, Augustine's um, influence through Manichaeanism was uh, by a man named Faustus, and Faustus was quite a scintillating teacher. Better, you know, as an orator than Ambrose, but Augustine had come to feel by this time that Manichaean teaching was just a lot of hot air, very fine, fancy words, no reality attached to them. So the straightforward preaching of Ambrose really grips him. And at this time, God begins to deal with Augustine more and more. And we'll look at that in his book as he kind of traces that. At age 31, he is converted. Upon reading Romans 13, verse 13 and 14, and his own account of it is that he was in the back garden, uh, and he hears these children chanting, take up and read, and he sees a Bible sitting near him, and his, he picks it up, and his eyes fall on that text, and God uses that to really kind of bring Augustine all the way to Christ, and he is then baptized as a Christian in 387. Now, having become a Christian, Augustine sets aside much of that um, ambition that had driven him and you know caused him to reach this, this pinnacle as a teacher in Milan. He turns his back on all of that and goes back to his hometown and then to Hippo and uh, in North uh, Africa. Because he wants to establish a monastery, And he wants to just serve the Lord as a a minister or as a Christian, as a monk. He wants to serve the Lord in seclusion. He doesn't want fame anymore. He's laid that aside. And there was a bishop uh, in Hippo that he could serve under. And the bishop, recognizing Augustine's abilities, his great intellect and his great love for Christ, um, somewhat against Augustine's desires, convinces him, To be ordained as a priest. And then eventually Augustine becomes the bishop. Um, So he he becomes the bishop there. And for the rest of his life, he serves as uh, the pastor of that region, having to do all the work of a pastor. It's easy to read Augustine and think that maybe he's this armchair theologian who sits in this great ancient library, but he's not. He's a pastor. And in the midst of all that busyness, he writes and writes and writes. And we can see that Monica, his mother's desire, came true, that the great education that he got combined with his natural abilities um, were used by the Spirit and did great good to the Church. He is perhaps, at least in the early centuries of the Church, he is certainly the greatest theologian and has had the most impact both on Roman Catholicism from that period and later Protestantism. Um, His Confessions... Uh, Thomas Nettles writes uh, on, um, about these. He says his confessions established the theological agenda to which he devoted his massive skills of philosophical and theological reflection. His views of Christ, the Trinity, human sin, the character of evil, the free agency of man, and yet the innate depravity of the fallen will The power and necessity of divine grace, the nature of the sacraments, the direction of human history under divine providence in this fallen world, all of that, Nettle says, you find it kind of in germ form, in the seed form in the confessions. He ended up uh, writing so much that he is the most prolific writer from the ancient world. Um, So we're coming to one of his most famous books today and that is his confession. So let me just kind of give you a quick overview of that. It was written between 397 and 400 AD, and the importance of that is this. It is an autobiographical um, book where he lays out uh, in, in these um, 13 books, the first 10 in particular, he, he just lays out from childhood to his early 40s, um, what God showed him to be true about himself and how he's wrestling with these things and how God deals with his soul and how he comes to peace with God. So while it is, it is autobiographical, and we can say that it is the first Western Christian auto, uh, autobiography written, uh, it's not a complete biography or autobiography because it, it ends in his 40s. And so we don't have the other years. And, and it is... And it deals, the whole book is not autobiography because it's the first nine chapters that really give a lot of that information. Chapter 10 is kind of a summary, but then chapters 11 through 13, what he calls books 11 through 13, uh, these are almost, it's kind of like an appendix to the book where he deals with the book of Genesis in a very philosophical and allegorical way, which uh, seems strange. It seems like it's almost tacked on to to the uh, Confessions. It is interesting that the confessions were written as prayers um, to God. So each book really is as a prayer to the Lord, and we're allowed to kind of come alongside and read them with Him. Now, I want to say something just a little bit uh, from some other authors about his significance as a writer. Uh, Philip Schaff, who is one of the great historians in Christianity, he was actually a 19th century scholar, and he's one of my favorite. He speaks of uh, the confessions, which Augustine wrote in the 46th year of his life. And, and there, you know, there's that burning love for Christ is there, and, and he's thinking back on how, how God dealt with him. And this is what he writes. Uh, Schaff says this, Here we see the great church teacher of all times prostrate in the dust. Conversing with God, basking in Christ's love, his readers hovering before him only as a shadow. So, you know, it's God that he's focused on, but he knows that others will be hearing what he says. He puts away from himself all honor, all greatness, all beauty, and lays them gratefully at the feet of the All Merciful One. The reader feels on every hand that Christianity is not a dream or an illusion, but truth and life, and he is carried along in adoration of the wonderful grace of God. Well, let's just, Andrew, why don't you walk us through the, particularly those first 10 books of uh, Augustine's Confessions, and then we'll look at one of these great masterpieces and how it applies to the Christian life.
1: Yeah. Well, coming to this, I mean, I'm only in my first year of seminary. I feel like I'm closer to the average reader than necessarily, uh, you know, a theologian or historian, Um, though both of those things are, you know, my favorite subjects. But the book has always been something in my life that has caught my attention. Even about a year before I was even saved, um, I read it for school and just found it fascinating because it's from 400 and <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's something that we can still read today and it resonates with us. He, he has a lot of the same things to say that people say now. And even before God opened my eyes, I was able to be impacted by it. And then later after I was converted, it was, it became one of my favorite books of all time just because of how much. It's got in it how much good history and theology and heartwarming nature of how Augustine writes. But going through the books, the first one is really his early years. So throughout these, Augustine takes time to stop and to praise God for whatever phase of life he's in, whether it's a God-pointing Augustine back towards himself or Augustine just running headlong into sin, he still confesses the mercy of God in that. And that's one thing that I wanted to say is when we think of confessing, I think most of the time, at least I think of confessing sin. Um, But in Augustine's confessions, it's not just Augustine telling us every bad thing he's ever done. It's also confessing the mercies of God to him throughout his entire life. And so you really see that right off the bat because he spends a while talking about how it was a mercy of God and uh, um, God really caring for him that he even survived infanthood because Augustine couldn't do anything for himself at that time. And he points out that he can't even remember that time. It's only by observing other babies that he could even put together what his life was before he was able to really rationalize things. So he, uh, he goes through his infant stage talking about both his need of God's goodness there and even the fallen nature that he sees at that point. And he confesses those things. And that's really the extent of book one. Book two, he goes into his adolescence. And um, he talks a lot about how he's forced to study. And it's not something that he wants to do, but um, he's forced to. And he confesses that at this stage, he already was growing to love evil and evil for the sake of evil. And we'll, we'll talk about it later because it's something that is uh, at least I feel like it's pretty well known in Augustine's life, but he steals some pears when he's 16 and it ends up being something that he looks back on. And it, I mean, it grieves him deeply that he would steal these pears. And I don't know for me, if I stole pears at 16, I might not look back on it when I was, you know, a fully grown adult and be so grieved. But that's something that's so beautiful about how Augustine writes. Uh, book three is when he becomes a student at Carthage. And here, as he, you know, uh, progresses further and further into his education, this is, you know, his late teens. Uh, he he's, he's living a life of sin and for sin mainly, but he, re- he picks up a book for his school called Hortensius by Cicero. And um, this book, although it's not Christian by any means, it points him to higher things and it, it redirects him from just loving kind of the base things of this world to wanting to pursue the, it, the immortality of knowledge, I think is how he puts it in the book or at least in one of the translations. So it's at this point that he's taken from kind of just an obsession with the material to being how we see Augustine for the rest of his life. Someone who seeks truth almost without hesitation. He just like runs headlong into it. But at this point he's not brought to uh, faith in Christianity and rather he turns to Manichaeism and, Manichaeism, um, which we see him stay in for a while. Uh, also, at this point, he does pick up the Bible and <clears throat> he he wants to give it a try. But to him, it's, it's he really sees it as his old mother's religion. He, his father wasn't a Christian, like you said. It was it was something that he kind of looked on as a belief system for um, less educated people. Uh, and he he picks it up. He tries to read part of the Old Testament, and he shuts it and says says God is too violent. It's not like a refined enough thing for me and um, moves on and joins the maniches. So book four, uh, his life from 19 to 28. And this is the point where he is the most steeped in Manichaeism. Uh, he becomes incredibly close with a friend that he knew growing up, but they really didn't become close friends until this point. Uh, he's, he's unnamed, but Augustine and him, they, they both are very wrapped up in Manichaeism, and they, he really relishes in that friendship. He, he spends a while talking about how sweet of a friendship it really was, even though it only lasted about a year um, because his friend quickly took ill, and uh, this was a pretty pivotal moment in Augustine's life. So this friend that he has grown incredibly close to over the past year is dying. And, um, he, in his death sweats, as the book says, he, uh, he passes out and his family baptizes him because he was raised a Christian, but Augustine kind of talked him out of it. And they both became very, you know, much more philosophical (laughs) thinking they were better than that. But he's baptized. His friend is baptized while he's in this swoon, and when he comes to Augustine, uh, tries to joke about it with them, like, oh, they baptized you while you were passed out. Isn't that <laughs> that silly, right? And his friend actually um, puts a lot of faith into this baptism and tells Augustine that he wishes he wouldn't talk that way. And so this turn in his friend's life right before his friend's passing away, being baptized and kind of putting away Manichaeism um, was something that we'll see impacted Augustine. Uh, In this time, he also, he starts seeing beauty in the world as something that means that there's goodness in the world. Uh, He writes a book on this called The Fair and the Fit. Um, It was not a big hit. He was pretty much the only person that read it, but uh, he sees the beauty of friendship and the beauty of the world, but he makes sure to clarify that these things, you can't really see them rightly unless God opens your eyes and friendship cannot really be Um, as in-depth and true as it should be unless it's in a mutual love that is given by the Spirit. So in book five, Augustine is still a Manichaean, um, and he meets, well, he's had issues with the religion. Uh, Some of the stuff that it teaches is kind of out there, and Augustine can't really make sense of it too well. And when he talks to his friends about it, um, they all just tell him, wait for Faustus. He's a great orator of the the religion and he'll convince you uh, you know he has all the answers. And so he banked a lot on meeting this guy and when he does, he is he's impressed by his ability to speak to um, he, he talks really well and Augustine, who is you know highly educated in rhetoric even at, at this point um, He appreciates that about him a lot, but he also knowing kind of the craft, knows that he's not really saying anything new. Um, And the book had a pretty interesting thing to say about this, the way Augustine worded it. He, He says, but what could the most presentable waiter do for my thirst by offering precious cups? So the idea that the vehicle that's supposed to be delivering truth is these cups, and no matter how beautiful the cup is that Faustus uses, no matter how wonderful his words sound, it's, still an empty cup. Um, and so his meeting with Faustus is definitely pretty pivotal in his, uh, the breaking down of his Manichaean religion. So at this time, he moves to Rome. Uh, he's offered a position there. And like you said, the, the students at Carthage are so bad that he has to leave. Um, turns out Rome is not much better because the students at Rome, while they're very respectful and they really want to learn, they ask a bunch of questions. They, they try to learn extra about halfway through, you know, what we, we would think of as a semester. Before they paid the teacher, the whole class would leave and go to another teacher. So <laughs> he wouldn't get paid after teaching these people, <laughs> even though they were well behaved. Um, so turns out it wasn't that much better of a situation. Uh, he moves to Milan. And he meets Ambrose. And again, after meeting Faustus and that kind of shaking the foundations of his Manichaeism, he then meets Ambrose, who uh, is even more influential in redirecting his understanding of Christianity. Uh, Ambrose puts Christianity in a way to Augustine that Augustine finally sees makes sense. Um, when he gets to Milan, Ambrose is preaching through the Old Testament. Um, I'm not sure which part of the Old Testament, but that is what, you know, made Augustine drop Christianity and say, okay, that's kind of barbaric. Um, but Ambrose teaching it faithfully, uh, Augustine sees the truth that's in there and the realities of God. And so at this point, Augustine is not converted to Christianity. Um he is not regenerate, and he, looking back, I mean, he would admit that. But he's fascinated with the Christian religion, and he's willing to put away Manichaeism. Um, he still has questions, especially about the nature of sin and the nature of God. But at this point, he's he's willing to adhere to Christianity as the best thing that he's found. Um, he even becomes a catechumen in the church, um, which is just someone that's being taught. To be baptized, being prepared to be baptized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's book five and book six. Uh, Monica, his his mother, comes to Milan. He actually had to leave her to get to Rome because she really didn't want him to go because it was you know a, a den of sin. It was a very big city, and so she's like begging him not to leave. So he has to sneak out in the middle of the night and get on a ship. And uh, Augustine writes about her trying to chase him and find him at the docks and crying and praying that God would not let him go to Rome. But uh, Augustine says that God heard the intention behind her plea and not the words that she said, because in going to Rome, we see the unfolding of Augustine's life. He meets Ambrose and is changed. So, but Monica meets back up with him. Um, Augustine continues to search out what's error and what's truth and what he believes and, kind of consistently picking away at his uh, misunderstood beliefs about God. And he, uh, he really is joying in the fact that Christianity is not what he thought it was, kind of his um, surface level uh, understanding of it is not what the Bible teaches. And being under Ambrose's teaching, him being a very a good orator and a, a faithful pastor, both pointing him in the right direction. Um, Augustine at this point, his mom wants him to get married, so he has to put away his concubine, which he's had for uh, I don't I don't know how many years, but since yeah, his yeah it was over a decade. Year, yeah um and they had a child together. Um, but he puts her away, which he grieves over greatly in Confessions um, to prepare for his marriage, which does not end up happening. Um, he ends up canceling that. But at this time, having put away his concubine, he kind of falls back into his old lustful ways, um, which it was not his intentions, putting away the concubine. Um, so here we, we see him kind of tumble back into this miserable life of sin where uh, there's a lot of confusion and <clears throat> unhappiness, even while he's amidst Christian teaching that's good. We still see that his heart is not saved from, uh, you know, the sin that it's in love with. So then we have book seven and here we see Augustine really wrestling with a material conception of God and uh, the origin of evil. The idea of if God is good, what is evil? Is it something else? If God is everywhere, but sin is a thing, is God in sin? This idea that sin is actually like invisible or not some kind of entity that takes up space and it's a lot of confusion that stems from his beliefs before accepting Christian beliefs. Um, and so he kind of goes back and forth with these ideas and doesn't really fall on an answer yet. At this time, he also, uh, looks into astrology as a religion cause it's really popular. Um, but even in his own observations about astrology, he doesn't. He he dismisses it as fake because he watches twins that are born and they don't have the same fates, even though they're under the same signs. And you know, it's just uh, with careful observation, Augustine puts that away and isn't really tempted to delve into it too much. He sees more and more the truth of God. I mean, these past several books, we've seen that. But he writes that while the beauty of God lifts him up, his own heaviness weighs him back down, and he can't seem to really grab hold of the things that he, though, would give lip service to as true and the most reasonable thing that he's found. um, He's still stuck in love with his sin, unable to live for God. So then we have book eight, and at this point, Augustine and his friend Elipius, they are both learning a lot about Christianity, but they're also still very much intellectuals. And they're grieving over the fact that they keep hearing these testimonies of people being saved and having these great transformations in their life. But Augustine and his friend have yet to have that kind of experience. He writes that they are, they're heartbroken because the uneducated are taking heaven by storm. And he and his friend who are these, you know, very, very wise men, Augustine worked for the emperor as an orator, you know, he's top notch, but he can't seem to, you know, do what even the uneducated people are doing. And he writes about, is it better for man to like have this great knowledge of God, but not know him really or is it better to be kind of an uneducated person, but to love God and really grab hold of Him? Obviously, it's the the latter is better. So he and his friend are in this, you know, cycle of grief. Um, but Augustine is still ensnared by old sins, and even from his youth, he writes in the book, he used to pray, "Give me chastity and continency, only not yet." Um, so Augustine wanting salvation but also fearing the loss of the sin that he loves so much so augustine at this time this is this is where we have his conversion account where he he and his friend are um, con- convicted of these things and it weighs heavy on them and they're out in basically the the backyard of his house and uh augustine starts crying really hard and he goes to be by himself because crying is, you know, for being alone, not for sitting by her friend. And he, uh, and that's when he hears take up and read. And so he takes it as a word from God. And he goes back to the epistle that he had, which was Romans. And he reads that passage, which I'll read. He reads, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And in that, Augustine is really changed. Um, Before, the the Manichae religion thinks of Christ as just a great teacher. And Augustine kind of still held to that belief that Jesus was just a teacher that was really blessed by God. Um, But seeing there that, no, we put him on and we cast off those old sins that ensnare us. There, he is, uh, his heart is struck and he really does that. Um, his friend reads further where it says, Those who are weak receive him, and um, and he is saved too because he feels like his faith is less strong, but he feels that that <coughs> verse speaks heavily to him. Um, and they tell Augustine's mother, and she is overjoyed having. Prayed for years for um Augustine. She was very, very faithful in prayer. Uh book nine, we have Augustine devoting himself to God fully now. Uh he leaves his teaching position because he doesn't feel like he can do that and also be faithful in his Christianity. And he kind of gets alone. He goes into the country basically to prepare himself for baptism. Um and he's baptized, he and his son are baptized. And in this book, Monica, his mother dies. In book 10, it's a bit more of a summary, a kind of a conclusion. Um, and he talks a lot about memory and the nature of memory, uh, which makes sense because as a, you know, man later in life, looking back on all these things, it's reliance a lot on his own memories of situations. But God, uh, he really praises God for the mercies that he showed him throughout his entire life. And I mean, he he talks a lot about how we can't even understand fully our own minds, and yet we want to rely on them. But in reality, God is the only reliable thing. So really just a a consistent pattern of bringing every situation back under the microscope of how God has been merciful and how he can confess the, the glories of God in that situation, even when it comes to him remembering his life is still a mercy of God. So yeah, at this point he uh he writes that he's his life is lived for God and that is God saved him for that purpose. Uh and he writes something that I found very interesting and that's that God knows and still uses Augustine even though he is weak and unskillful, which is crazy because Augustine Was one of the greatest speakers of the day. Um, And, you know, just a brilliant mind. But Augustine still sees himself as needing the blood of Christ, even on his, you know, skills as humans would see them. Well, with the end of book 10,
0: that kind of wraps up the autobiographical aspects of the Confessions. And that's what we really want to deal with. So let's step back a little and. After having looked at that unfolding of his life up to his early 40s, let's go back and look at some of the high points of the books. Obviously, we don't have time to hit everything, but some of the high points and particular applications that we find for us today in them. Um, When you think about their first two books, um, there are a couple of things that he mentions there as God as creator, and then he, you know, thinking of himself as a helpless infant. um, There are a few things that are really significant. Um, One of them is that he does discuss the existence of sin. And then a little later, when he he comes to that point where he was a teenager that you mentioned, where he eats the pears um, or steals the pears, he talks about the nature of sin and that of course becomes a thing that haunts him as he tries to, to grapple with this big question of what is sin and you know where does it come from and how do we deal with it and you know and he, he goes all the way around the world mannequinism and then you know astrology as you mentioned do, do we watch the, the movement of planets and you know and this and the zodiac and do we look at all of that and does that help us understand the past and predict the future and does that control us? Um, So, this is a pretty significant question for Augustine, and it's a significant aspect of his theology later in life, because if you know anything about Augustine, you probably know that um, Protestants, especially in the Reformation, point back to Augustine uh, in his description of the nature of sin and of the existence of sin. And Augustine is famous for arguing or debating in the early days Uh, of the church against a man named Pelagius, who had a different view of the existence of sin and and its nature. And so uh, we believe Augustine was being very biblical in that that debate, and that has impacted us a lot. So when he talks about the existence of sin, um, Andrew, where does he kind of get that from looking back?
1: Yeah, well, looking back at book one, when he's talking about his his, uh, you know, very, very early year or two, um, whatever it might be, he, I mean, he's kind of merciless to babies. Uh, He talks about how like a baby, a lot of people will say it cries because it needs something. Um, But uh, it's not just when it needs something. Um, You'll see babies crying when they want something that will hurt them. You know, like we think of now, like a baby trying to stick a knife in in a powers outlet or something. It's like the baby wants to do that. And that's not that's not something it needs to do. So the caretaker will take the baby away from that. And the baby will scream and cry and even try to hit the whoever's, you know, taking care of them. And Augustine points at that and he he says, That's that's sin. The way a baby acts is something that is not generally reproved because the baby can't understand reprovement. And Augustine points out that once we get older, that kind of behavior is completely unallowed. Like that has to be taught out of people, not taught to people. And so just seeing that sin is in um, humans from day one, you know, uh, David writes that he was brought forth in iniquity. And um, Augustine really kind of brings that home with his pictures of infants. He says that it's not the... uh, it's not their will that's innocent. It's the weakness of their limbs. Like if a baby could really hurt you, you would probably get hurt because they don't, they don't care. Uh, he points out that if a, you know, a baby's wet nurse would feed another baby, the, the first one would get super jealous. And he writes that even if the second baby would starve to death, if it wasn't fed at that moment, the first baby would still be just as jealous. Uh, is like, th- they are very self-absorbed and, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny when you read it because it's not something we generally think about today. Uh, we don't generally think about our actions as a baby before we can even remember and really grieve about the sin that's there. But Augustine, he takes it all very, very seriously and to heart in a way that, I mean, it's kind of, it's convicting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've never heard a Christian Christian testimony at church saying, um, before I came to Christ, you know, I remember as a baby, I would have killed my siblings, or I would have killed my parents if I had the strength, you know, I I wouldn't have cared at all. But yeah, as you mentioned, it seems strange at first, but it really is very insightful. And of course, Augustine only knows this, he says, by observing other children. So he knows that he would have acted just like other infants. But the fact that we are fundamentally self-absorbed and that we're not unwilling to deceive to cry as if we're hurting, when really we're not hurting, or as if we're hungry when we're not hungry, Uh, but we learn that that's how we get what we want. Mm. Um, The reason I want us to stop and think about that is that uh, Augustine does talk a lot in his uh, theological writings about the existence of sin, not primarily or not initially, in our um, clear, rational, volitional choices. So I am old enough to understand that this is right and this is wrong and I choose wrong. Well, that is sin. But Augustine is pointing out that before you reach an, the um, ability as a human to, to reason like that, there is still a sinfulness in your character. And that's why you reason like this later. And It's not the other way around. And so when we think of the existence of sin, Augustine's talking about what we call original sin, that the impact of humanity's representative, uh, Adam, in choosing self over God. Uh, Paul makes a great deal of this, particularly in Romans 5, where what our covenantal representative did, the representative of humanity, which God gets to choose, makes a choice, and the choice is the wrong choice, and the consequences affect every person he represents, all humanity. And then, of course, Paul's wonderful uh, second aspect of that argument is that there is a final Adam. There is another Adam. There is another representative that God has chosen, the God-man, Jesus. And the God-man acts on behalf of his people, and he obeys and his obedience, therefore, wonderfully impacts every person united to him. So in Adam all die, in Christ, every person united to Christ, they are made alive. Um, but when we think about depravity, we don't want to get the wrong idea. Depravity isn't saying, uh, when we say, well, people are totally depraved. Well, we say, well, but I see people that are, that are able to be kind we see mothers sacrifice for children, uh, a husband for a wife, you know, a friend for a friend. So what's, how do you explain total depravity when you can see goodness? And what we mean when we say that the Bible teaches the depravity of humanity is that every aspect of our human nature has been in some measure influenced by sin. So there's a pollutant running through our system. And sometimes it manifests itself in a very ugly way and sometimes maybe in a way that you you don't even notice, but it's there. It is bending us constantly towards self. It's self against others. It's ultimately self against God. So it's not being as sinful as I can be every moment of the day, but it is that all that I am doing, even my religion, even my acts or deeds of kindness— there is something of selfishness that's interwoven. And so, all that we do, apart from that, that washing, saving work of the, of, the, of the mediator Christ, all that I do is, is stained. It's unacceptable in the sense of paying God what I owe God. Um, so, the existence of sin, any points to the infancy, it's even there. But he also talks about the nature of sin further on, and that whole issue of the pears, and as you mentioned, it seems like a small matter. So what is it about the stealing a pear with his friend off of a tree and eating it and then throwing away? Well, what is it about that that helps Augustine see something of the nature of sin?
1: Yeah, so at 16, he steals pears with his friends, um, but he, he makes it very clear that it's not out of any need um, he says that they have better pears elsewhere, but they go and steal someone else's pears even though they're not even very good. And so he uh, he steals them. They don't eat them. They might take a bite, but they throw them to the hogs. And so what he sees there is something that, I mean, it really frightens him as an adult. And that's that while the world may say that people would do a crime out of some sort of necessity, whether that's a twisted necessity or not, they either want something they don't have, or they're trying to keep something that they do have. Augustine says that that's not the case every time because he knows that he sinned only for the sake of sinning. Um, He writes that my only feast therein being my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. You know, he steals the pears, but it's not a feast that he got pears. It's that he's indulging in this sin. He writes that it's not to look good to his peers, though he does point out that at this point and at the later years of his teens, he he would lie about doing more horrendous things than he'd done because in his peers it was, it was like a badge of honor to see who could be the worst. But even at this point, he writes that with none of them there, he still wanted to go do it. Um, and so this idea that sin is so deep set that it becomes an allure in and of itself to do what's wrong. Um, he points out that god it's against God's law as well to steal, and therefore it's in mankind, it's in your conscience to not. Um, but writing that he was like able to indulge in sin and enjoy it uh, despite knowing in his conscience that it was something wrong, um, regardless of like social norms, which also was against the law then. I feel like something that uh, I took away from this was that Augustine does not write that, like, oh, he sinned and he had this urge to sin, but he didn't enjoy it. It was something that was only, you know, unpleasant for him. He really focuses on the fact that it is something that he took pleasure in to steal these pears. And it's a reminder that, like, sin is not immediately bitter. It's not something like, don't lie to yourself and say that is something that I don't ever enjoy. Um, But it is so tainted. We have to realize that that enjoyment itself is completely against God and his nature and what he desires. So it's dangerous to equate sin to something that humanity would not like um, rather than something that God demands us not do, and he doesn't like. So, kind of a like a misapplication that sin is just like a, a moral taboo of humanity rather than the great rule of God. Uh, it puts it at a lower authority level where it's not so bad to transgress the line when when we don't really realize that it's uh, it's against the law of God, not just the laws of man. Yeah, and it's so inexcusable, you know, as he points
0: out with the pair issue. There, there was no need, and it wasn't even to impress my friends. I I just loved to do what was against God and what I wanted to do at the moment, and uh, you know. So, there I think is a good picture of the nature of sin because it is, it is this kind of insane determination to do whatever God doesn't want, and I find some twisted joy in doing that
1: just because I can. Yeah. Yeah, he writes, I remember highlighting it because it was so potent of a statement. He writes, it was foul and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved mine own fault, not that for which I was faulty, but my fault itself. Foul soul falling from thy firmament to utter destruction, not seeking aught through the the shame, but the shame itself. So taking on shame, not for any kind of gain, just for the foulness of it.
0: Yeah. At another point, Augustine describes sin in in his own life. And he said that he was chained, his, his soul, his heart was chained with unbreakable chains. But then he describes them and he says, chains that I had forged. You know, it is my own sinful nature. Um, another thing he mentions in these books, and then we'll move on to the other books, is that he does mention that God is a creator. And he says, I remember, um, driving down the road, I was listening to the audiobook version of this at one point, And, um, and you listened to two different audiobooks yeah. and then read two different, um, printed versions. And because obviously all of these are translations, unless you're, you know, at, looking into the Loeb library and reading it in Latin. The, um, the audiobook I was listening to, uh, I just remember driving down the road, and you know, it was a pretty day. And Augustine was just waxing eloquent on the creation. And I thought, man, what a clear grasp he has, you know, as a Christian looking back on the, the bigness of God. You know, he talks about this infinitude of God, this, this, you know, is he just big or is he infinite? And, you know, and, and, you know, all those questions of that, the relationship between that kind of a God in a, a limited creation, but then the goodness of God, and both of those are essential. It's not enough to see that sin exists in our nature, and it's not enough to see that the nature of sin is that it's an inexcusable rebellion against God. It's it's this insane rebellion. It's, it doesn't even pay well. It It's not enough to see that. We have to see those things also in at the, you know, at the same time, behind that is the bigger picture, that there is this creator, and he is good. It is the bigness of God that makes sin, sometimes we would say, terrifying to us, and we'd be willing to put away our favorite sins so as not to go to hell, so to speak. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is when you see the goodness of God as well. And, you know, Paul talks about the goodness of God leading us to repentance. It's in, it's in light of the cross, the goodness of God, that, that pinnacle of God's graciousness displayed. It is in light of that that sin is seen not only as dangerous, but as sinful. And suddenly the heart begins to hate what God hates because we see it in the right light. And it's not, I love my sin. But I'm going to be willing to give it up so as to avoid some terrible consequences down the road. So those things are all really significant, and those all show up, uh, you know, in some measure in the early uh, chapters of this confession. Well, we've looked at some of the things that the earlier chapters or books of the confessions speak of: the existence of sin, the nature of sin, the bigness of the creator, the goodness of the creator. And now I want us to kind of focus in on what Augustine says um, as he describes the work of God um, in its entirety, kind of in bringing Augustine from darkness to light, from the deception and the idolatry. And he mentions quite a few things that he he really clutches onto. Uh, He is quite an, uh, uh, an ambitious man, aggressive. He doesn't just sit around and shrug his shoulders. He wants life you know, at, at its fullest. And so it reminds me a lot of Solomon in the, in the Ecclesiastes, you know, the, I, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, you know, he really goes for it. And each of these things leave Augustine empty, and God allows that to occur in order, you know, to turn him to Christ. And we do find a biblical principle here, and it's an important one for us as believers, and especially as we share the gospel with others. And that is that God never fills those whom he has not emptied. Now, we're not saying that this emptying, this convicting process, this tearing away our idols and, you know, removing our, our, our paper mache walls of defense, we're not saying that that stripping is meritorious, that, well, if I go through enough stripping, I've earned the right to hope in the gospel. That's not at all what we mean. I think that, um, you know, when we think of some of the Puritans and they talked a lot about how God prepares us for the gospel, and that has come to be known as preparationism, it's a bit of an unfair interpretation of the majority, the main body of Puritans. They did not believe that you had to go through certain steps before you were qualified to hope in the gospel, before you, you know, demonstrated that you were one of the elect. Uh, What they were saying is what Christ said, that It's the sick that feel the need of a doctor. And so if you do not feel your illness, you just don't go to a doctor. And Christ came to save those who were sick, but they must feel they're sick before they go. And so the law, of course, does that. But also the emptiness, the empty nature of sin, the the fact that it does not give us what it ultimately promised us over and over and over. And that does... In the providence of God, that does open our eyes uh, to the need for something greater than creation. We need the creator. And so I want us to look at how God stripped these things from Augustine, how he emptied Augustine and made him hunger and thirst for righteousness that had to come from someone else. And then how that brought rest to him. So, you know, if we if we look back at those early books and
1: what would you say is one of the first things that he mentions? Um, I think the first thing I would say that was stripped from him was kind of just a uh, an acceptance to live his life completely in just like base desires. Uh, and that that's when he read Hortensius by Cicero. Um, before that point, he was happy to just kind of wallow in whatever depravity he could find um, without any sort of higher calling he felt he was you know, striving after. But Hortensius is a book that was lost in about the sixth century. Um, but we know what it was about. And Cicero wrote it and it's a dialogue between, I think it's four men discussing what they should do with their leisure time and how they should spend their lives basically. And Cicero, who is the hero of the book, tells them they all need to study philosophy. Because it's the ultimate pursuit of life, um, is what the point of the book is. So obviously, it is not, it is not a book that would turn most people towards God. But um, God uses it in Augustine's life to pull him out of just a you know desire to live a really debauched life. Um, Augustine is not freed from his sinful desires, especially not his lust. I mean, that remains to be that remains a problem, but. It makes him dissatisfied with it. And uh, you, you see that when he writes about it. He says, uh, this book, talking about Hortensius, altered my affections and turned my prayers to thyself, O Lord, and made me have other purposes and desires. Every vain hope at once became worthless to me, and I longed with an incredible, incredibly burning desire for an immortality of wisdom. So we see there that he says every vain hope is worthless now. Um, And so you see that kind of amazing work of God using a pagan philosopher talking about how wisdom should be all that we care about to strip the enjoyment of vain things out of Augustine's life. Another thing we see is that uh, early relationship
0: with this best friend, and we don't know the name of the best friend. Uh, it's interesting that he doesn't give his name, and he doesn't give the name of the woman who really was uh, kind of, for all practical purposes, a wife to him, uh, the concubine when he was a lost man. Um, we don't know her name anywhere. Uh, it's it's not mentioned. So when he comes to speaking of this friend, he talks about the fact that he he just really gives these glowing statements of how happy he was in this friendship. So it's just a friend, and they meet, and they have a lot in common. And somehow Augustine feels, you know, this, this makes sense of life, these wonderful, lasting friendships we can have with other people. And so it's not lust, it's not sexual pursuits, it's, you know, it's not base pleasures. You know, we're, we're kind of moving up the ladder of, you know, what we think of as a civilized kind of a, a pursuit, and it's friendship, um, uh, but the friend, as you mentioned in the survey of the book, he and Augustine are Manichaean in their views, and they mock Christianity a lot. And they especially mock the um the physical aspects of Christianity. And when that friend grows deathly ill and is unconscious, you know, so kind of in a coma, and his parents, who are Christians, Baptize him, have him baptized, because of the view that baptism would accomplish something for him. And you know, as in in that context, that view. Um, when the friend comes to, and Augustine goes to visit him, Augustine kind of just he thinks the friend's going to be, you know, thinking the same things he thought where they left off last time they were hanging out. And so Augustine mocks the fact that his parents would baptize him you know, this physical thing uh, can't be of any value because they're Manichaean. Physical things are of no value. You know, the physical rituals of a church have no value. They Not even in symbolism, they're, they're nothing. And so he goes to mock that and his friend is offended. And uh, because he, you know, coming close to death, he's beginning to rethink things. And uh, so he tells Augustine if you want to stay my friend, don't come in here and mock Christianity to me ever again. And so Augustine, you remember, uh, he thinks he's offended. Like, uh, you know, well, where did that come from? And then he thinks to himself, well, he he's weak. You know, he just almost died and he's just recovering. So I I won't argue with him, but when he gets better, I'm going to let him have it, you know, and and we'll mock these things again together like we always have. And the friend dies. He doesn't fully recover. He dies. And, and, in, and in that, Augustine not only realizes that the, the idol of a good friendship, so to speak, uh, though that's a gift that God gives us in common grace, that does not satisfy. And on top of that, this, this close friend has, at, right at the end, turned toward Christianity. And that really shakes Augustine. Why would he do that? And um, so that's another thing, God using the death of that very close friend. And it does remind me of how you know it, there, there are, I think, many examples in history where those who mocked Christ to others and led them down a path of mocking Christ. Uh, so maybe, you know, I think of Newton, Newton, even though raised by a very godly mother who taught him the Westminster Confession, and but an unconverted father. His mother dies when he's still young. His father remarries. You know, his father does, so to speak, the best he can, but he he's not a spiritual help to Newton at all. Newton becomes a very wild child. And as you read the uh, the autobiography of Newton, you find that he just goes from bad to worse. And while he is on the the ships that he's working on before he becomes his own captain. Um, He meets other people who went to church and other young men who, you know, knew the Westminster Confession. And John Newton mocks Christianity. And these young men who had some religious background, but perhaps are not, you know, true Christians, they don't really know Christ. They just have heard a lot about this Jesus he sways them and they become mockers. And later in life, he mentions this as one of the great shames of his life, that he would teach other men to mock God. And yet God changes John Newton and how many countless thousands and thousands through his sermons, his letters, and his hymns have learned to praise Christ. So this mocker, the friend that we don't know his name, uh, is taken from um, Augustine and he is turned at the end to, uh, away from mocking to hoping in Christ. And it really kind of shakes Augustine's confident,
1: you know, um, rejection of Christianity. Yeah. And like you said, it, it seems like he's being stripped of like the next level of his life. Kind of like initially it's only being able to have pleasure in sin, and that's kind of taken away, and that, that thing feels worthless now. And then it's friendship, which seems very noble. And after this friend's death, uh, Augustine writes about how you know he has other friends, and he tries to spend time with them, but he can never get back that closeness. And so while he still is living very much in sin and still is surrounding himself with friends to try to dampen the kind of heartache, those things don't do what they used to for him. Mm. And I think the next thing we see that in... Is kind of the um, philosophical religions that he leans on so heavily with Manichaeism, especially. We mentioned earlier, just going over the summary of the book, that he meets with Faustus, who's supposed to have all the answers that you know le- lead Augustine to doubt the Manichae religion. Uh, and when he does this, you know he's impressed by his abilities, but it's it does not lead to the answers of any of his questions. So he starts seeing, you know. Manichaeism breakdown. Uh, we see that even more when he meets Ambrose, and something that I find really interesting, and it was actually pointed out in one of my church history lectures that I listened to just this past week, is that when he meets Ambrose, everyone in the town of Milan is like, "Ambrose, Ambrose, Ambrose, he's so great. He's this great orator. He, you know, he's a, you know, amazing bishop," and it, it wounds Augustine's pride because he works for the emperor. He's got all this training and he's a teacher of rhetoric. Um, So we even see kind of his own position being taken away from him when a man who teaches a religion that Augustine sees as kind of silly is held in higher esteem than Augustine himself in that town, at least. Um, And so we see Manichaeism start to break down over that and astrology as well. You know, just seeing that the religions of the day that people were really putting on a pedestal and saying these, this is what a modern man should believe if he's really, you know, as smart as he should be. Augustine has those things torn away slowly, uh, even to the point of, you know, his own ability to, you know, think and talk are broken down a little bit over the fact that Ambrose is held in high esteem, preaching something that he finds foolish
0: I think that, you know, a modern application of that, because, you know, I doubt any of the people that might read Augustine today would say, well, you know, I don't know. I I don't know if I can give up Faustus' book, and I don't know if I can give up my Manichaeanism or my astrology. Um, modern applications, think of it. Astrology is basically kind of a fatalistic approach. So it, it's the it's being able to read the uh, movement of the celestial bodies, you know, the way the old way of saying it, to look at the stars and the alignment of the stars and of the planets and to, and to feel that in those things, there is some determinative force on every action of the, of the individual. And if you could read them correctly, you could acquire special knowledge that would let you, you know, you would be a successful person because you could read, you know, the events of the universe in in the stars. And so that was for many centuries strange to us. That was considered a valid science until, you know, not long after the Reformation and that was put away as saying that. Well, that's not a serious science. Uh, even you know, even those that would not agree that Scripture is true would say, well, but that's not true either. So, in my mind, a, a modern application could be: we could say, well, we kind of feel like we are just the product of our environment. And I was brought up in this kind of family, and and in this kind of. Um, you know, culture. And that's why I do these things. And so it's still the same kind of fatalistic excuse. Um, these things determine us and we are not accountable to a creator. And my moral choices are simply the outcome of, of culture. Or we think particularly of, you know, the the, the gene code. And so, well, we, we realize how much the physiological aspects of a human affect our feelings and choices and and how our f- feelings and choices affect our physiology. And, well, that's true. But then we, we kind of jettison over into a, a scientific fatalism. Well, I am just the product of the combination of my, my DNA, and um, I will be certain ways because of my DNA. And, and so that, that's who I am, and I have to just be true to that. Well, but what about your response to the Word of God to your Creator? We say, well, we say, well, well that, that, can't, that can't be taken seriously because I can't control these things. I am who I am. Um, so, you know, then philosophies, people who we, we hear, you know, on television, whether it's kind of pop culture or whether it's a very academically successful advanced person, people who can just put things in the right way and we say man that, that sounds right you know and whether it's the spin doctors who just give us a little phrase uh you know that we got and we saw on our phone today or whether it's someone who we read his book and they said well i have the new explanation for life and you know we don't call them philosophers anymore we just think that you know, this is the way I view my life, and I get a piece from this guy over here, and a piece from this lady over here, and I've put together kind of a a view of life, and that's your philosophy. And when it's contradicting what God says, ultimately, it is a philosophy rooted in self-deception, and it will leave us empty. Uh, Another thing that left him empty, you know, other than we mentioned the relationships and when he was young, he talks about wanting to be loved. He, he he wanted to know what love was. He wanted to be loved. But he said as he grew, you know, through adolescence and hormones kicked in, then he said lust was injected into, you know, a desire for real love. And so suddenly it's twisted now. And he said it kind of clouded his vision so that he pursued and used relationships for lust in such a selfish way, and, you know, he, he lost a desire for love, and he was taking, you know, the, the counterfeit uh, instead, and that didn't satisfy him. And then ultimately, even his academic accomplishments, even becoming the orator for the emperor, um, you know, does not satisfy him, even though that was what he had been aiming at from the very beginning of his education, so to speak, to be the, to reach the top of his field, and he reached it, and he's still empty. So, we see God using all these things to um, that he's hoping that would fill him. God is pulling them away from him one at a time. After Augustine sees, that didn't satisfy me, and he has stripped him of all. But what's the that, that's not a Christian. You know, coming to your senses, I remember reading the Scottish pastor, the young pastor, Robert Murray McShane, describing the prodigal son. So he, he is there and he spends all of his money. The party's over. His friends are gone. He's eating the pig slop to stay alive. And he comes to his senses one day and he realizes, you know, a slave, a servant in my father's home has it so much better than I do eating pig slop far away you know, abandoned by my so-called friends, that I should just go home. And McShane mentions that coming to your senses, God opening your eyes to how insane and empty living against him is, is a great starting place. But that's no finish line. That is not a Christian. A person that comes to their senses and sees the emptiness of living for self, who can reason through that and say, that was empty. That is not Christianity. Christianity is when we see the emptiness and we turn in hope and we are driven to the person, Jesus of Nazareth, and his work as the God-man becomes our hope. You know, there is that totality, all that we know of Christ, we embrace with all that we know of ourselves. That's Christianity. So what we've talked about up to this point, there seems to be many noble stages but that's not a Christian. So the Christian comes in the rest. So tell us about um, what Augustine says about
1: rest. A pretty notable quote from Confessions is, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until we rest in you. And Augustine talks more than once about his realization of kind of the futility of a lot of what he's chasing and, you know, the restlessness that comes with being, uh, finite and fallen and just kind of the toil that he, he lives in apart from God and searching for rest. And finally, you know, he finds it and, um, just the truth that there is a creator and Augustine and, you know, the rest of humanity were creatures and there is a rightful role in that dynamic and the creature that's not behaving like a creature that's trying to put, them, put themselves on the throne is not at rest um, at any point. And so to, to finally, for Augustine to finally find his peace in Christ, um, his whole life being able to to be at rest because he is finally made right with his god um is you know he he even looking back he points out that it's such a mercy that he's able to find that and to see the the beauty in the immutable um and how it's so superior to the to the mutable um yeah just the the relation that, that there is a proper way to relate to God, and Augustine is not at rest until he finds that, and you know neither are we. Well, we've kind of summed up
0: some of the key points in a quick fashion, of, particularly of the first nine books of the, of the Confessions. So let's kind of close it up by saying, what do we think are the strengths and the weaknesses of the book? So if someone were to ask you, well, what's helpful about this book? Why would you recommend the book? Um, and maybe how would you recommend it or to whom would you recommend it? What would you say to that?
1: Right. So the strengths of the book, I think something that stands out immediately to me is that it is very in depth. It is not across the surface. It's not merely an autobiography, um, though I'm sure it would be good just as a, you know, overview of his life. Augustine goes in depth into so many different subjects, a lot of them much more philosophical than a normal book that I might read. Um, But because it is a narrative, because it starts when he's born and he talks about his whole life leading up to conversion and then in like his remembering of his life and just the nature of the mind and how God has made us, even in the... Headiest parts of the book. There is it's understandable because it's, you know, you see part of his life and then he expounds on it with some like, you know, pretty uh specific aspects. Um, but in that we find that it's it's understandable while also being more in depth than a normal autobiography that you might read. So I found it and I have found it very, very helpful that it is an incredible piece of history. Um, And so even if, I mean, most philosophy majors have read Augustine, even if you're not looking to be benefited, your soul to be benefited by Augustine's, you know, heartfelt words, you might come to the book just looking for, you know, the piece of history that it is and the, you know, incredible mind behind it. And yet, you know, you cannot read this without... Um, you know, taking note of the fact that everything in Augustine's life is put under the light of God and what He's done for him. So, one strength being that it's easy to not not necessarily easy to read, but very understandable despite yeah, being old. I, I think we could say you know
0: it's it is easy to relate to, yeah. even if the language or the circumstances are different. You know, we you know we say well I, but I'm never going to be. Caught up in astrology or Manichaeanism, or I probably am never going to study, you know, in Northern Africa. I'm not. I'm not going to have this situation. But the things he talks about, the interiority of the human life, and as you say, as he walks through those stages of life, I mean, those basic things are they're common to all humanity. And it is shocking that when a man writes in the year 400, so to speak that he could write things that you and I could read and think, that is exactly, you know, how I have felt about these matters
1: before. Right, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it is just universally applicable to humans. And, I mean, that's incredible. Um, I think another strength is his, like, meticulous care that he takes in pointing out the mercies of God um, from, as we've mentioned, the... Infant stage of infancy, where he is cared for; um, he has no strength of his own to keep himself physically alive. Um, to you know, his young adulthood, to his later teen years, there is not a page that you can read without it Augustine turning and praising God for the way that God's hands on his life, um, and just the the beauty of reading an autobiography that is so old and so complex. And it's, you know, it's in a time of history that's pretty relatable to us that we can think of what Rome was, you know. Um, and yet it is so Christocentric. Everything is about God and about the salvation that he brings to man. And when I read this book, I you know, initially, I was amazed that this man in 400 AD was writing in a way that resonated with me, that I could join in with the way that he praised God. The things he writes are not like removed from our uh, experience as Christians. Um, The way that he looks to God and, and worships him it's something that, if I was a better writer, I could have written. Um, so I think the the care that Augustine gives to making this a confession of the mercies of God, as opposed to just what his life was, um, has to be probably the greatest strength because it's really what makes up the body of the book. Is just a, a a bigger view of God than I think the average Christian has.
0: Yeah, I think also when you. Sp- speak of the carefulness. When he does speak of his particular sins, he doesn't do it in a way that um, glorifies them. Um, he, you know, he, he's honest about it, but he he's careful not to present sin as some, you know, big, you know, this monstrous thing that I, I, I you know, again, he's not glorying in his sin, but he's honest about it in a way that's, I think, beneficial. It's honest and helpful. It shows the nature of sin and the, the emptiness of it. But he's very honest about that and probably more honest, you know, than many of the biographies that we read. We tend to read biographies of, if I read a Christian biography, when the person writes it later in life, you know, or when they, when they think back about themselves, maybe they exaggerate how sinful they were because they feel that that would honor God. But you feel that Augustine's he's being very honest uh, without exaggeration and without glorying in the sin. Also, when he talks about depravity, he doesn't present depravity in this book as an excuse for sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me again of what McShane said, you know, in the early 1800s, 1400 years later, Robert Murray McShane said, the, the truth of our depravity does not excuse our sinful choices. It aggravates the the guilt of our sinful choices. So in other words, your problem is not that you've been doing some wrong things or saying some wrong things at home or having a bad attitude. It's that all of that is just an expression of of a much deeper issue between you and God. And it's that it's not just what you're doing that's wrong, it's what you are is wrong. And the way McShane handled it evangelistically and the way Augustine talks about it. It never becomes an excuse for sin. Well, I'm depraved, so I, I can't be expected to act any other way, and I think that's helpful. Weaknesses of the book. One weakness is that it's removed 1,600 years from us. So even though the um, the spiritual and, you know, mental and uh, you know, heart struggles are there and we recognize them, they are couched oftentimes in, um, in circumstances that we feel that we're about, that, that's, a, that's another planet, you know? I mean, that, that's just so different than us. And probably I think you would agree that there, there is um, repetition in some ways, that, especially for a modern reader. Um, you know, he's hit this theme before, he's hitting it again, and then he's hitting it again. And it's not that it's wrong, of course, it's just that it, for a modern reader, it can, it can become a bit of a hurdle, uh, you can get kind of bogged down about the middle of the book and you know and give up and that that's we suggest you don't do that you know press on um, and you know you will as he continues to progress you will see new things and but so removal from our everyday circumstances that can make it a bit difficult um, and the repetition um, it's it's a few hundred pages and that can make it a bit difficult. Anything else you think of as weaknesses?
1: No, not, I mean, I'm sure there are other weaknesses and it definitely depends on um, how you approach the book as well. Because for me, I just have this glowing view of Augustine. And so if I read something that could be taken as maybe too Neoplatonic, I, you know, the way I interpret it in my own mind is, is much you know, um, more acceptable to me, um, in some way, but you can come into this and you can see the beginnings of Catholicism and you can see that Augustine's major, you know, um, influences throughout his life were very philosophical. Um, and later Christianity is, you know, paramount in his life, but he still has the education that he grew up in. And so while it can be a strength because he is very well, you know, spoken, it can also, it could be a weakness because he might put too much emphasis on those things, um, depending on how, how one sees it. So I think that also plays into the repetition. um, And maybe just some, some moments in the book that are very in depth on subjects that, I personally did not find super helpful. Um, and the last three books being a really close look at the first chapter of Genesis in a way that is very allegorical. I mean, he's talking about seeing the, um, the church in the first chapter of Genesis. At that time, mm-hmm. there is a, a big debate between allegorical interpretation and very literal Interpretation, and while Augustine didn't necessarily fall super hard to one side or the other, he generally is pretty uh, solid, you know, not swinging too far one way. Um, You can still definitely see that in these last three chapters. So, while I don't think it is the best, um, you know, maybe sermon or whatever you want to call it on the first chapter of Genesis, you have to come to it with the understanding that it's a fallible person from sixteen hundred years ago and I think if you do that in it then the it whole book will be very beneficial
0: yeah I think what you're saying you know basically we're giving we tend to give Augustine um, perhaps because of our ignorance of the that those centuries I mean even though in in seminary I had to read patristic you know the church fathers the patristic theologians and the you'd read through about the that era but that's not the Field that I focused on, and so I've probably forgotten most of what I was taught. I tend to I tend to read ancient writers like that, um, and I give them a a wide berth. I give them a lot of grace, Mm -hmm. you know. And so, if I guess, if I were an expert in that era, and in how his general thoughts played out later in the Roman Catholic Church in ways that we would feel are not biblical you know, then as I'm reading confessions, I might find a lot of things that I think, oh, that, that's the beginning of that, or that, that's a foretaste of that. That's a foreshadowing of a pretty serious error that will, de- that will develop. And it's partly his fault, you know, or, or mainly his fault. And so I, I would say that I read Augustine like he is a Reformed Baptist, you know, and I think now he is in heaven. He is a Reformed Baptist. No, I'm, no, it's like half joke, but half, maybe 49% joke. Uh, so I, I read Augustine like he's this, he, like, hey, like Augustine goes to church with us. Augustine reads the Puritans. Augustine, one of his favorite books is John Owen's Communion with God, you know, and we can do that. And that is that is a lot based in our ignorance. Mm. Um, but we, we come to those ancient writers, and while we cannot recommend everything he wrote, uh, we feel that Confessions is a book where the common... Um, truths of Christianity, which all Christians would hold as important, th- those are the things he focuses on. And so we find it very beneficial without having to have arguments with him, you know, every other chapter. One historian writes that Augustine was undoubtedly the greatest theologian of the early church. And I, I think that across the board, people would agree with that who study that era. Um, but he points out that he understood perhaps better than those who followed him in the, in the following centuries and who you know benefited so much from his many writings, you know, hundreds of uh, th- um, treatises and a thousand sermons that, that are in print and then, you know, and the, the debates and his central part in dealing with, uh, the Donatists and the Pelagians, which were both very significant attacks on biblical Christianity, uh, they they looked to Augustine and maybe they kind of saw him and you know this with a halo around his head, as if he could do no wrong. He is one of the uh, official doctors of the church, which in Roman Catholicism uh, that's a saint who is uh, set apart. Um, by the papacy as officially one whose teachings are of extraordinary significance to the church. So he wasn't just sainted, uh, he is uh, and just an academic and a great theologian. So in the Roman Catholic Church, he's considered one of the top tier, and really, I think Protestants would say so as well. But this historian gives a statement from Augustine about his own writings, and I, I find it uh, very balancing. So here's what Augustine wrote. We who preach and write books write in a manner altogether different from the manner in which the scriptures have been written. We write while we make progress, so, you know, we're still learning. We learn something new every day. We dictate at the same time as we explore. We speak as we still knock for understanding. I urge your charity on my behalf, he says to his readers, and in my own case, that you should not take any previous book or preaching of mine as holy scripture. If anyone criticizes me when I have said what is right, he does not do what's right. All right, so if if you're criticizing me and I'm right, that's not good. But then he goes on to say this, but I would be more angry with the one who praises me And takes what I have written for gospel truth than the one who criticizes me unfairly. Which is quite a statement. Because he knows his own imperfection, I am more angry, more frustrated, more bothered by those who praise me as if everything I say is perfect than I am with those who criticize me unfairly. So a, a good balance as we approach Augustine's writings from Augustine himself. Andrew, you mentioned uh, listening to two different uh, audiobooks for this and reading two different translations, two different physical copies. What come you know as you as you walk away from that and some of our readers will think, well um, is there a best translation or is there a best way to get this into my you know my empty moments in the day so that I can benefit from it? Do you have any advice from that?
1: Well, with the multiple translations, all of them were different. Both audio books were different from each other and both of them were different than the two physical copies I read from. But I can't say that I know which one is best. Um, for me personally, I didn't find one to be that much better than the other. Uh, the first audiobook I listened to was actually a very modern translation. Um, I mean, it didn't use like slang or anything, but it was it was just made very easy to understand. And I think for an audiobook, that was really good. It didn't seem to take away, in comparison with the second audiobook I listened to, from the theological depth of it. Um, with reading it physically versus listening to it, I think this is a, a rare case of a really in-depth book that you can listen to effectively, because. If you miss an important theological point in a book that is purely theological, you're going to be behind, and you're going to have to rewind and you know catch back up, try to figure out where in the bullet point bullet pointed list you're at. But with this, it is it is an autobiography. It's, an autobiography, it's a narrative. So if you miss a point or you don't really grasp it immediately, and he moves on too quickly because he's just reading in your ear. Um, you're not going to be behind. You can pick up with the next point, and you can get the gold out of it that you can get out of it while you're going about your day, or you know, on your drive or whatever. So I find it I find it good to listen to, especially because it's a pretty long book, and some of the sections can be repetitive. And so, reading it physically only, if it hasn't really grabbed you, uh, you're you're pretty likely to you know set it down and pick up something else, which I think would be a bit of a shame just because of the, you know, incredible significance and benefit that this book is.
0: Yeah. So in our show notes, we will give some um, recommendations for a couple of physical copies that are out there. Uh, I think both you and I both have a copy from Everyman's Library, um, which just kind of is a a secular company that has put out um, the classics, you know, throughout the centuries, and they do a really, really stellar job Uh, In the paper, the the construction of the book. Um, It just makes it nice to read from. Um, So we both, that was our favorite physical copy. Um, I listened to an audiobook as well on Audible, uh, but there are other websites that offer it. Audible, I believe, at one point had a uh, free one. The one I got wasn't free. And then there are other websites where uh, other apps that offer it for free. So we'll put all that information in uh, the show notes. But before we close, for a biography, um, from what I read and, uh, you know, looking at different um, trustworthy um, historians of our day, almost without fail, they point back to Peter Brown's uh, biography of Augustine. It's It's back in the 1900s that it was written, but it has become the gold standard. So Peter Brown, and I believe the title is just Augustine of Hippo, and you can find that online, and so we'll put that in the show notes as well. If you want to go back and get a much fuller treatment of his life, uh, he wrote this book a number of decades ago, and then uh, more recently, there have been some archaeological finds where uh, letters and sermons of Augustine have been discovered that weren't when, uh, when he first wrote the book. And he goes back and he gives some kind of epilogues, some appendices where he talks about, um, you know, what he he saw in those newly discovered things and some ways that his views have changed a little and uh, which are not substantial. It doesn't make his old book worthless. And also he talks about if you are an academic, he deals with modern uh, academic treatments of, of Augustine since his first biography. Um, how that's shifted, how how the academic scene has, you know, dealt with it, um, which is helpful if you are reading Augustine on that level. So Peter Brown, Augustine of Hippo. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this. Uh, We will return and uh, we hope in a few months with another one of the great classics from Christian history, uh, as we try to navigate through these works and see what was so beneficial from them.